0: Hi, I'm Gareth Kane. Welcome to the Net Zero Business Podcast. Okay, so today I'm joined by James Dixon, who is Associate Director, Hyphen Sustainability, at Newcastle Hospitals Trust. Welcome, James. Hi, Gareth. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me. So in 2019, Newcastle Hospitals Trust made the headlines by becoming the first healthcare organisation in the world to declare a climate emergency. Now, we're going to get to the story behind that in a moment, but first, I'd like to go back to the beginning and ask James, why did you first get involved in sustainability?
1: Well, I've always been interested in just outdoors. So I'm from rural Northumberland, a little bit further north here where I'm based now in Newcastle. So always like the outdoors fan of nature, spending time in that way. And then the subjects of school were just geography and biology that seemed to be of more interest to me. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. It got to, uh, I picked the A-levels that I liked, geography, biology, and computing, and blunderbussed my UCAS forms. Didn't know what degree I wanted. It was all at different universities as well. And then I met my now wife just before applying for university, so stayed local. So I went to... Northumbria University in Newcastle and the course that I was down for that was computing and when I looked around and I saw the syllabus and other bits I knew I'd made a mistake so thankfully in the first week I switched and went over to geography and environmental management and that was one of the best decisions I've ever made and then did my degree and was trying to find a job in the environmental profession with no experience naive lad from the sticks and was lucky enough to have a bursary uh, funded to do my MSC yeah. in Sunderland, so not too far, a bit further south from here. And then I knuckled in and did a workplace module and tried my very best to get experience. That got me a job at the city council. So I was really, really lucky that my interest and my studies were what I was, you know, passionate about. And then I managed to get a career in that. All my friends and peers. You know, we're getting degrees
0: and good qualifications, but they didn't really follow their passion, if you like. So
1: I do count myself
0: really, really lucky. Yeah. And did you find the content from your degree? Was that immediately applicable to what you were doing in in the job or were were you mainly learning in that job?
1: I think there was definitely the foundations. I was really lucky because I'd had that blip of applying for one course and then going across to a, a completely different department. At the time, my undergrad was actually environmental studies. Environmental management was the BSc that most people did. Environmental studies had a few more module options. Mm-hmm. So I could do sustainability for business or that kind of thing. So I, I did some of my modules in the business school, not just in the in the geography. So, yes, I found some of that was really applicable. Again, really, really lucky with that. And the work placement module I had with my masters got me a placement at Newcastle City Council doing environmental auditing and management
0: systems. And then did you move from the council to the hospital's trust or was there intermediate steps?
1: Yeah, I was in the council within their sustainability team, implement environmental management systems. So ISO 14001 and EMAS that some people might be aware of. But also I was poacher and gamekeeper so I was auditing other people's systems that they were implementing across the council but I was also implementing systems in areas that I wasn't auditing if that makes sense but it was a great foundation because I would be assessing the environmental impact of the bin wagons or the grounds maintenance team or Newcastle city pool and the leisure centers so really really lucky that I could have that variety of sectors and kind of knowledge. And then I moved on within the council to go to one directorate. So I was with the highways, civil engineers, town planners, and I worked on their environmental management systems from within. So, yeah. yeah. And then I did move on to the hospitals, yeah.
0: So I mentioned it before, but this pioneering move in the Newcastle Hospitals Trust to declare a climate emergency, can you tell us the story behind that?
1: Yeah, I joined the hospitals in 2010, And like a lot of people, I was the lone environmental professional in the trust. I think we had about 15,000 staff at the time, but focused on waste audits, reductions, cost savings, recycling, sustainability strategy on the side and the action plan and the governance and other bits and pieces. Recruited green champions, did some great projects and grassroots. So that was all fantastic, but it was quite incremental and, you know, like, usual with business as usual you're just trying to make marginal gains yeah. and then we managed to get some bigger improvements when i recruited a team and established a bit of a brand so sustainable healthcare in newcastle which we acronym to shine give us a bit of an identity and you know the wider trust we're starting to see Ooh, that's you know how we link our work to some of the sustainable work that we do. So on all the recycling posters and other things and all our comms materials. So that was all great. And we're winning some awards for little projects. But in 2018, the IPCC report, so I'm sure all your watchers know what that acronym stands for, but Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is all the climate scientists coming together around the world. And their report in 2018 showed that we were basically on a precipice. There was the 1.5 degrees agreement in Paris that we were trying to limit global heating to. And at the time in 2018, there was a 50-50 chance of staying within that. That was the trajectory Mm -hmm. we had. Obviously, we know now that that chance is increasingly disappearing. But at the time, 2018, I had young kids and I kind of felt complicit in the business as usual that I touched on earlier, that working within the system as environmentalists, passionate about reducing environmental harm, we weren't doing the transformational work that we needed. So that, that summer, and, you know, people will have their own timestamps around then. So Greta was starting her strikes that summer. Uh, Extinction Rebellion were, were doing their first kind of actions and demands of parliament. And that winter, 2018-19, for me, was really, really difficult. So, like I say, we thought we were doing quite good things, but I just felt depressed that winter, absolutely. So it was getting into early 2019 and I was gearing up to get arrested. I was getting trained with the extinction rebellion for <laughs> nonviolent civil disobedience and taking part in some local actions here. You know, we, um, Gareth, you'll know that the Corner House Junction, not yeah. far from where we live, really bad pollution hotspots. So a few local families and uh, we took our kids down to just basically protest on uh, the side of the road there and also in the center of town because there's about 200 excess deaths in the wider city region in your castle attributed to poor air quality okay. so so nothing quite arrestable at that stage and you know my missus was getting a little bit worried about how <laughs> we could uh, pay the mortgage off but it was it I was still in that depression and she recognized that and um, thankfully well she's a clinical psychologist so yeah. she'd she'd seen the signs if you like and could see it in us. I was you know I was quiet people will recognize it you know I was withdrawn energy going and just genuinely frightened for my kids future yeah. angry at you know governments over many years have known that this was coming and they just continue down a, a terrible path so yeah it was a really really difficult time but what it did spur me into do and thankfully my wife pointed out that I could have influence you know yeah. I didn't I absolutely didn't feel it at the time but I, I you know I headed up a small team of environmental professionals within a very big organization it's an anchor organization in the city of Newcastle and like a lot of big hospital trusts are so my meager I think I calculated it was about eight tons a year of my personal carbon footprint. Yeah. Then there is 50,000 tons attributed to our controllable emissions at the time at the hospitals. Yeah. So, you know, if I can turn that super tanker, I'm going to have more impact than me getting arrested and, you know, going yeah. to plant trees and do pro <laughs> bono work, which is the way I was going. So thankfully, I then approached my director at the time. I had a few hats other hats so i was responsible for car parking asbestos fire you know a a willing horse um working with good professionals but it was stretching us away from the work i wanted to do and what i was passionate about and it was fueling my anxiety and my fear really well climate anxiety ego anxiety that we we know now and he was really receptive to transitioning some of those other services to other people and allowed me to pull together a bit of a proposal to our executive team about stepping up our game. Now, that was great. I mean, try putting a, you know, a one pager to an executive team about, you know, why this is so important to planetary health as well as Human health. Very, very difficult. But I was up for the challenge. And it was about the time, so this was early 2019, Extinction Rebellion did their really big action in the April of that year. And there were a lot of councils uh, declaring climate emergencies uh, about that time. There's a lot of early ones. So it became a bit of a hook, a bit of a thing that, you know, this could be what we did. We would declare that. Now, obviously, underneath that, we were saying how important it was to population health. You know, if we don't attribute this, we're just going to have more people coming in through the front door. Why do we continue to burn fossil fuels as our primary source of heating? Can we transition away from that? Diesel vehicles and ambulances, surely we can do a bit better than people breathing in that pollution and coming back through the front door. So. Yeah, long story short after that, then I managed to get a good one-pager forward, and the execs were intrigued, and there were challenges around affordability and deliverability, right? so, and we were able to answer some of them. But some of the hooks that really, really landed were we were under a new leadership team at the time, Dame Jackie Daniel. She's just moved on, actually, at the end of this year, uh, last year, but she was new at the time and trying to instill a bit of different culture and... Kind of partnership working with our city other city institutions like the council and the universities etc so the fact that the council were looking to declare a climate emergency and the universities were considering it that kind of said we should be joining our civic partners if it's a priority of theirs yeah. as well and we'd like i say we'd been doing some good stuff some good projects the shine brand was relatively well known so I think the exec team had confidence that if we do do this, if we do kind of put our heads above the parapet and, you know, say how important it is, we've at least got a bit of a foundation to to go from. So it was still a bit of a challenge. So it was on a knife edge. They hadn't agreed to declare. There was a lot of back and forth. And then when I thought it was almost slipping out of my grasp because of all these challenges, there was the final executive team meeting before the board was going to meet in, it was in June 2019. And my naivety at the time of governance arrangements of these hierarchical kind of organizations were that I would need to get approval from the execs and then go to board and get approval from them. But what I know now is that essentially, if you have the CEO and all the executive team members on board, then you know you're, you're pretty much going to to manage to get yeah. it on the line.
0: Well that was one of the number of things that I was going to pull out of that story because I, 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 I've heard the story before which is why I asked you to tell it again because I think it's so powerful. The fact that you used eco-anxiety and due credit to Mrs Dixon for her efforts in there because it sounds like they were pivotal but using eco-anxiety to raise your sights rather than continue down into despair i think that's that's a fascinating lesson the other one which you alluded to there at the end was the importance of getting that leadership sponsor Mm. on board and how that can be influential as well as well as the the peers the other organizations in the city if they're doing it should we not be Mm. so those are the three things i pulled out of of the story you've just told us
1: Yeah. And just to get back to the leadership bit. So I was really, really lucky. And and I do think that a lot of the stars aligned, you know, it was good timing. It was my drive at the time that I I'd not long read Joanna Macy's book, Act of Hope, which was part of that, you know, are you going to, are you going to sit there and essentially grieve for the planet and not do anything? Or are you going to do something about it? What's within your sphere of influence? So that kind of drove us to do that, but it did feel like it was slipping away. And on the morning of the la- the the last proposal for the execs to agree to do this, I thought, well, the night before, what more could I do? So, I'd been reading Greta Thunberg's little collection of speeches. I could get it for three quid from Waterstones, and uh, I was reading that to the kids. And I thought, well, damn, Jackie likes a book. You know, she's an example of empowered leadership. But so, oh, I could get that three quid's not going to be seen as a bribe. But you know, shy lad from Northumberland, I wasn't going to give it to her. So, I wrote a nice, like, um, little note, and I thought I'd drop it off with her PA the next morning. And I drew attention to one of the quotes in there about cathedral thinking. So, yeah. you know, we've got to be brave. You know, you've got to start the foundations. not quite knowing where you're going to get to, because essentially mm-hmm. we are being a bit brave with this declaration. The NHS is a very politicized beast for those n- not in the health sector. You'll, you'll mm-hmm. know how cherished it is as a... Uh, an institution in the UK, yeah. but it is very politicized. It is funded by taxpayers' money, and the direction of the politics at the time can can change quite a bit from what you can do. So it was taking a risk. So I dropped it off with Dame Jackie's PA and then skedaddled,
0: like I did, and sitting with it.
1: And then I got an email later on, must have been around lunchtime after the execs had all finished, and it was from Dame Jackie, and it was saying, uh, thank you so much, we approved it with loads of exclamation marks. Fantastic. Now, I took that you know, with a pinch of salt because I thought I had a load of work to do Mm. on, you know, getting the rest of the board. Channel 4 News got wind of it. So Victoria McDonald, who I met, which was amazing, interviewed us and came and did that. And the chairman was getting interviewed the day before the board meeting and I was off camera and he, and she said, well, what if you don't agree to do this? And he'd said to her before the interview, oh, it's fine. We've agreed chair's action. We've already agreed that this will happen. And I thought I was going to have to do the Blitty presentation of my life <laughs> so that night was a lot less stressful pulling together the few slides that I had for that
0: so yeah I should have said actually the fourth thing from the story was you linked the climate emergency to health mm. and obviously you know the, the NHS has stated that it's one of the biggest if not the biggest health challenge going forward so that's always uh, something I find important in talking about sustainability and the climate in the health sector
1: yeah and the green Renage test team have a good little tagline of healthier planet healthier people so we know that the the determinants of health apart from socioeconomic status is essentially your environment. So the air that you breathe, the green space that you access, the food that you eat, et cetera. So it's so intrinsically linked. That's why it's it lands really well with the workforce. So societal expectation on action in this space has changed massively, even in the time that I'm talking about, you know, with this non civil disobedience rising. Mm-hmm. And don't waste time on climate change denial conversations anymore in the organisation, which is yeah. very refreshing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what I'm, I have spent far too much of my time arguing with climate change denials. <sighs> um, so, you know, once the, the camera crews had packed up and gone and the, 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 the minutes had been approved and all the rest of it, what did declaring climate emergency actually mean in practice?
1: Well... We didn't actually know. So we went forward wanting to do that because all I wanted genuinely was for them to kind of understand the pain or the other fear that I had and how important it was for health, as you have touched on earlier, Gareth. So I just wanted them to get it and that, you know, I don't know the answers. I don't know how we're going to fund this. I don't know how the hell we're going to turn this super tank around But you just all need to know that this is really, really important to us, really important to society, important to our patients. And if we crack it, then the health, the ill health burden on the country is going to be so much lower. So we kind of went into it, and there was a there was an article that Dame Jackie did not long in the HSJ, and the one bit came out of it was we didn't have a forty five point plan ready to sign off and agree and crack this. So we were in uncharted waters, if you like. But what it did do was empower staff who were already kind of wanting to do work in the space to do that work. Yeah. Now what did happen was the floodgates opened. So me and my little team <laughs> got inundated by a load of more green champions wanting to do great stuff, yeah. which is welcomed. But then every other kind of sustainability professional in the NHS or the national team establishing their work wanted a piece of our action. And <laughs> maybe in me, I welcomed that in and try to accommodate it and, you know, share it because even as big as we are in the city in Newcastle as an anchor and an employer, and the NHS is as big as it is, the NHS is only 5% of global healthcare spend. So when you're talking about your embodied emissions, you need to create those ripples. So yeah. uh, that was, I didn't anticipate that. I didn't anticipate my inbox getting as 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 crazy as that was. But it also, so it lifted up that empowerment. We had a strategy that we took a whole year to kind of think about after we declared. And it was really ambitious, um, some bits now haven't stood the test of time as well we thought we could do that we can't there's been a little pandemic in the middle of it all as well but it I would say the main theme is just it empowered staff
0: to act you know and to yeah well if I could um, share an anecdote if that's all right because just about the time all this was going on I suffered a hernia and Ended up in the Royal Victoria Infirmary, the, one of the big hospitals that the trust covers, and you know when you're about to be wheeled into um, into surgery, the anaesthetist always kick, uh, you know starts up a conversation while you're waiting, and she asked what I did. I explained it, and then she started talking about the different global warming potential of different anaesthetic gases. I was so impressed that you know just before surgery was about to take place, when she's doing her job of making sure that I am both sedated properly and going to come back. <laughs> that she, that she was so fascinated about this. I'd love to know how the conversation ended, but I, I woke up in the recovery ward. <laughs> but it was a real measure of how the, the, deeply the enthusiasm, I think, was felt within the trust. Mm. in terms of targets what targets came out of the the declaration
1: yeah so when we declared it changed slightly so we basically said that we wanted to be carbon neutral by 2040 and um that was that was really just trying to align with some other partners and, and and early stages but what we honed that to be you know, testing what yeah. the staff thought it was, align it with the science. We did some excellent work with the, the Tyndall Center, who, you know, a lot of people will know the climate scientists there, and Kevin Anderson, the professor there is amazing. They essentially do a carbon budget on a place-based scale. Mm -hmm. So, we were lucky enough to have a one for the city of Newcastle. And what we did with their help was essentially create a budget down to our organizational footprint, which hadn't been done before and was certainly the first in the NHS. So, we knew how much carbon we could emit if we were to stick within 1.5 degrees. So, we still have that budget and we measure against that. But also, that showed that the lion's share of the work had to be now, had to be sooner rather than later. So what we landed with was, and to use the NHS language, the NHS targets are the carbon emissions, the NHS controls. There's going to be a net zero by 2040. Uh, So that's 10 years ahead of UK government. And for the emissions that the NHS influence, which is huge, about 70% on average, is by 2045 so still Mm. ahead of uk government and we've gone more ambitious with that because we know if we're going to truly align with the paris agreement on the grandfather and kind of rights we are net zero for the emissions we control 2030 and the ones we influence 2040 and that does align with newcastle city council who are 2030 net zero and newcastle university who are 2030 net zero as well so the city of newcastle is all aligned
0: to achieving that yeah Excellent. And the Tyndall Centre carbon budget, was that effectively a science-based target with a small SBT because it's giving you that trajectory down to to a one point five global warming? Yeah.
1: Yes, definitely. Not to the SBTI standard because that gets you into scope three, but yes, essentially and it's very much energy carbon only so you know when you do other carbon footprints people are familiar you tend to have carbon dioxide equivalents because you've got other greenhouse Mm. gases this is purely on energy because it's measurable and relatively easy to um, to work out in that space and it is the carbon from energy over that time so it is a carbon budget for our energy but what we do to make it easier is essentially say all of the controllable emissions that we have, yeah. you know, which we'll get onto around anaesthetic gases and travel. I was going bit. to ask
0: whether my anaesthetic um, gas was was included in that. <laughs> it is. It is. Is there have there been any downsides to declaring a climate emergency? Is there any times where you wish that you'd done it, done something a different way? Or
1: I think, well, on balance, no. It's you know massively more positive than it is negative Mm. but you know the downsides are definitely that you've put your head above the parapet so you can't get shot at so oh you've declared a climate emergency but oh you've just opened a car park yeah you know those challenges then come which Mm. you know is totally fair enough and also people just hold you on that pedestal so they assume you've got it cracked Mm. so Newcastle declared a climate emergency they'll you know surely have sorted all these things out and why aren't you doing this or that and then staff And the the good negative, if you like, is because you've done that, you need to be acting in all these spaces. And for a team that didn't, you know, change fundamentally from before and after we declared that we stretched ourselves too thin. So we were very ambitious. We wanted the breadth of sustainability so wide. So that is possibly one downside, I would say.
0: Yeah. But I can see, you know, you obviously took a brave decision to dive in at the deep end and that meant you had to swim. Yeah. Whereas a lot of people are still sort of paddling at the shallow end and sort of wondering whether they should step a little bit further into deeper water. <laughs>
1: there is. And yeah. but to use that analogy, there's been others that have slowly slipped into that deep end and got got a lot of work done that haven't declared a climate emergency. You know, yeah. I'm aware of people that have really focused on their controllable emissions in the NHS yeah. and have done it without fanfare, you know. So there's been some excellent stuff. We we had thought it might have gone like local authorities in that more people would declare climate emergency and then you'd have this wave of NHS doing that. But I think that was the pandemic kind
0: of put a stop to that. And, you know, rightly, people were kind of focusing on elsewhere. Yeah. So, you know, you've mentioned... Some of the obvious challenges, you know, healthcare is often literally a life and death decision <laughs> sector. The NHS is huge, but day to day, what what do you find that you're you're struggling with, or or barriers that get in your way to to what you're trying to achieve?
1: I think well, it's probably the same everywhere. It's you know we haven't got enough time and capacity. We're, you know we're a public service. We are a small, you might consider us a consultancy, you know, an in-house charter professionals trying to to work on that. It's it's never as big as it should be. And then even if you manage to get other people on board in the we're 18,000 staff now, yeah. they, they haven't got the time and the capacity and the funding. We're always competing for that. So it's time and yeah. money like a lot of other places. But probably of our own make and we you know, we want to be a global leader in sustainable healthcare. Mm. We want to cover every aspect of it. The Shine program I touched on earlier, there's eight elements to that. Yeah. You know, so naturally you're gonna have eight, at least eight projects on the go. Invariably, you know, energy is just one of them. <laughs> and that's, yeah. you know, eighty percent of our controllable emissions is a big kind of city center hospital, the heat and power. So you've got loads of projects going on there. So yeah, time money and just
0: breadth of work that we're trying to do yeah. yeah because you know we we touched on the anaesthetic gases before and there's other issues like meter dose inhalers and things like that um, it always struck me that healthcare has as well as the usual heating buildings lighting and and powering equipment and uh, moving stuff around uh, you've got these other challenges as well Yeah, we are small
1: towns, if you like, the hospitals, you know, these big hospitals that you see. So we still have the same challenges of a 24-7 service that you've got to keep that ambient temperature. You've got lots of people coming in. You can't close the doors. So refurbishing to a low temperature heat network to make you ready for heat pumps or ground source heat or geothermal. You know, the NHS doesn't have lots of extra space to decant a ward to be able to do that kind of work. So that is a a unique challenge in healthcare compared to peers who I work with in higher education. You know, the summer, the students go, you know, you have a window where you can get in these places and get stuff done. So there's that challenge aside, but you're right. There's things in our controllable emissions like anesthetic gases, volatile anesthetic gases have high global warming potential. Your anesthetist was probably mentioned. There's which is the bad boy of the volatile anesthetic gas. Very quick, very expensive, and you, you snap back out of it. But 2,500 or something times worse than carbon for for every gram that gets emitted in the atmosphere. Yeah. So work to kind of phase that out and use lower carbon anesthetics. Uh, we've been doing some great work. Well, the anesthetic teams have. We hosted the the first uh, UK Sustainable Anesthesia Fellow at Newcastle doing work yeah. across anesthetics from 2018. I think Cathy started, and then we've had a, a different one each year. So our clinicians have really stepped up to to work on you know caring for people and planet if you like yeah, yeah. and then uh, another success that we've had so we we call it in the group of anesthetic gases but there's analgesics as well nitrous oxide and entonox or laughing gas uh, that people yeah. might be aware of so gas and air Pain relief, given birth, it's uh, been used for 100 years. Uh, Nice guidance says that all birth and mums have to have it available if they want to use it. So it's not going anywhere fast. So we knew that, and it's a big proportion of our um, controllable emissions in healthcare, and we couldn't do anything about it. So I'm part of a European network as well. Um, There's an NGO called Healthcare Without Harm. I actually sit on their board uh, of directors voluntarily, in Europe. And we were aware within that network of Northern Europe, Scandinavia, a technology where they were taking this gas and as it was ex- exhaled by the users, they crack it into harmless nitrogen and oxygen. Now, nitrous oxide is nearly 300 times worse than uh, yeah. carbon as a, as a greenhouse gas. So, And we use this in healthcare a lot. So it's a pain relieving uh, gas. Yeah. But that technology we were the first in the uk to adopt that so um there's a if you if you punched into a cosia not google you'll see baby rosie in your castle she was the the first baby born in the uk using yeah. that technology
0: so that essentially it was climate friendly uh pain relief it's not just being pioneers on the on declaring a climate emergency you're you're pioneers at actually taking some of these these practical actions yeah 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 no, it's uh, something to be very proud of. OK, so looking back at, you know, what must have been a, a mad four or five years, particularly as we, as you mentioned, we had the pandemic in the middle. Mm. What do you think are the most important lessons you have learned? If somebody was coming into your team, what uh, advice if you were sitting down and uh, and saying, look, this is what you need to do to get things done right here, what would you advise them?
1: Yeah, well, anyone coming in the, into the NHS in a big organisation like ours, the, the first bit of advice, and it's it's just don't get overwhelmed by it. and th- And that's just the NHS and the size of the organisation, because you tend to come in as a specialist, certainly in my team, yeah. you know, you're doing a function and your expertise is there. Suddenly, you know, you're on two huge hospital sites and, you know, 18,000 staff who deals with this and that. So it's, it can be overwhelming. So that's definitely the first advice. But, you know, holistically, I would say probably just taking forward the opportunities that are presented to you. So I'm lucky enough to have, well, taken on lots of roles outside the sphere of what a sustainability practitioner and a professional would do. So, The hats I've worn is the responsible person, water, for the whole of the trust. So, that's where Legionella Control and other things are involved. Huge litigation risks. You know, you're you're learning acronyms like HCAI, healthcare, acquired infection. So, huge, huge risk. That said, nothing really to do with the work that I was doing, but I got really close with the engineers and the ops and engineering guys. So built that relationship with them, and also microbiologists and infection prevention control. So if if you are not familiar with healthcare operations or in the NHS, this is like the, the health and safety on acid. Infection <laughs> prevention control in NHS yeah. are all about standard precautions and absolutely making sure that we do not put more harm to patients. So my relationship with them and microbiologists came about with that kind of work. So... And I still draw on that social capital if you like because if you have those allies yeah. you can you can get more stuff done when you're trying to make changes that uh, is always hard
0: yeah so it's not just having allies on the board which we've already covered as being really really important and really useful but having allies across the the organization
1: yeah to be just super connected really and 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 I work on that you know I'm just Uh, if people reach out, I want to know what their role is. Certainly in the early days, I was feeling overwhelmed in the first few days when I landed Mm -hmm. in the NHS because there wasn't anyone to manage me. I was by myself and I just reached out. And the first waste order ever did was in mortuary. (laughs) Lovely guy, lovely guy, the mortuary manager, he was going to have a human tissue authority audit. And he said, Oh, I think we're supposed to have a waste audit too. And I just said, well, that's great, Jeff, but can I come down and just see what you do and learn (laughs) about it? And, uh, that was fascinating. So, I would take every <laughs> opportunity that presents itself to you, even if it feels a bit
0: weird or outside yes. The <laughs> Definitely. Yes, the, the dead centre of the organisation. <laughs> they come in one door, they go yeah. out. The and other. The, the other networking you mentioned, of course, was the external networking as well, mm. because to Ecosia, the maternity gas and air recovery system, that was... Was that commonplace overseas, or, or was it in one particular country? It pioneered it, and then you brought it into the UK.
1: Yeah, it was. It was a, a well adopted for many years technology in Sweden. And there was a couple of providers uh, and then it kind of moved into other Scandinavian countries. And I think they were were working elsewhere, but it had really good footprint there. The reason that came about in in Sweden and other Scandinavia, I believe, is on the safety side. So another bit we didn't touch on, nitrous oxide as a uh, control of substance hazardous to health, COSH, it has exposure limits. Now that's fine. But if you work in the industry, like a midwife, for example, and you're exposed to that in the room a lot, that's yeah. really bad for your health. It can have detrimental impacts, particularly if you're expecting or planning on on having children as well. So it was a safety thing in Scandinavia. Yeah. And then, oh, yeah, it also has an environmental benefit. We brought it in on the environmental benefit. And, yeah. oh, by the way, you know, this actually reduces workplace exposure as well. So, yeah, we were first to bring it into the UK. And since then, that has grown and it's grown throughout the the world as well as a technology yeah. that can be used where this pain relief is still required. Yeah. So we had a little hand in that.
0: <laughs> no, I think that's, that's fantastic. Well, you know, the two of us could talk for hours on sustainability, but unfortunately we have to draw this to a close at some point. So I think we've covered a huge amount of ground. I think James has told us a fantastic story. So just leaves me to say thank you, James, for joining us. No problem, Gareth. Thanks for having me. If you find this episode of the podcast interesting, please do me two wee favors. first of all, give it a five star rating to help others find it as well. And secondly, subscribe via your usual podcast provider so you'll get every episode into the future.